night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program. Great to be here after an extended, well, it's not as extended as some vacations are because this was kind of an unintentional a uh, few days away from the microphone, but it's good to be back. I hope everybody was able to enjoy some of the best of programs, the Beyond Reality Radio classics that we uh, aired uh, instead of the live program because there were some good interviews there. And uh, I hope you know that uh, I missed being here and I'm glad to be back. Uh, but at the same time, it's nice to have a couple of uh, nights off to do some other things. And I spent a lot of time playing video games with my son. Um we don't need to comment on that, but that's what I did. Anyway, um, so we've got a great show tonight. We're going to come back uh, with the live programs here tonight with Jason McLean. Jason is a biblical paranormal researcher, but he's going to be talking about cryptozoological and paranormal creatures of the Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas area. He's got a book out that's called Metroplex Monsters, Dallas, Dallas Demons, Fort Worth Goatmen, and Other Terrors of the Trinity River. That's tonight's discussion. Looking forward to it. Uh, For now, we're going to go to break, and when we come back, we'll start the discussion again with Jason McLean on Beyond Reality. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Be sure to subscribe to all our digital venues, whether it's YouTube or Twitch. Or Facebook. You know, you don't subscribe to Facebook, but you can follow the page there. Go to uh, YouTube and Twitch and search for JV Johnson. Both of those pages will be found very easily, or channels will be found very simply, and you could subscribe to them. And if you go to Facebook, look for Beyond Reality Radio. It's very easy to find as well. And by being a part of all of that, you won't miss a thing because we do a lot of things digitally that we don't necessarily do uh, during the live broadcast. A lot of cool stuff going on there. Speaking of cool stuff, tonight we're going to be talking about a very, very cool topic. We are going to be talking about cryptozoological and paranormal creatures of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Our guest tonight, Jason McLean, has written a book about the topic called Metroplex Monsters, Dallas Demons, Fort Worth Goatmen, and Other Terrors of the Trinity River. And it's a real pleasure and honor to have Jason with us. Jason, welcome to the program. It's really great to have you here. Hey, JV. I'm glad to be here. So, you know, one of the things that I learned about you, uh, both from listening to some of the other interviews you've done, plus, you know, doing a little homework uh, preparing for tonight, is that you're a biblical paranormal researcher, yet tonight we're going to be talking about some cryptozoological things. Are these things connected? Um, I would like to think so, Uh, mostly in the broader sense of the fact that there is a worldview that's out there, right? Everything... Regardless of what your theories of how the world works, everything has to fit into it. I think that a lot of these cryptozoological creatures, the paranormal, obviously, but a lot of these cryptozoological creatures fit very neatly into a biblical worldview. I'm looking forward to exploring that a little bit more. But before we do, tell me how you got started with all of this paranormal stuff. I know my backstory. I know how I did. And I find that a lot of people share some very similar experiences to me, but I'm anxious to hear your story. Well, 
I think in many ways the paranormal was sort of a natural uh, sort of exploration, right? Bible, mm-hmm. angels, demons. It sort of all fits together, right? Sort of, it's in the same milieu. Um, but I think, and if you'd even asked me this a few years ago, I don't know if I would have given you the same answer, but one of the things I discuss in the book is actually my personal sighting of a living ramfractoid, a ramfractoid pterosaur uh, when I was 11 or 12. And, you did, wait, 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 uh, back, back up. R- hmm? Repeat that. What happened with the pterosaur? <laughs> uh, I had, I, or I saw, I don't know if it's much of an encounter considering it just flew on by. Okay. Uh, but a living ramfractoid pterosaur that, uh, here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Really? When I was about 11 or 12. And if you'd asked me, even just a few years ago, I don't know if I would have necessarily pointed to that as the thing that got me on this track, but I think in many ways it really has, because uh, I spent 20 years repressing it. Really, not that I ever forgot it, but I would have ignored it. I would have said, you know, I must be crazy because they can't be here in this area until I learned that, that other people had seen them, and they had seen them in kind of the same way I had seen them. Right? Uh, we can get into more details later, but... At first, I thought I was looking at a crane, a blue heron, uh, specifically because of its size, its color. It wasn't until I got much closer that I realized, yeah, that, that's, a, <laughs> that's not a crane. It's a pterosaur. Well, lots of other people have seen them, and they've seen them in the same way. They, uh, virtually everyone I've ever spoke to has said, I thought it was a pelican. I thought it was a crane. I thought it was a heron. And then I got a closer look. Uh, they all describe the same S-shaped uh, neck pattern. Right? Those kinds of things. Things that I hadn't told anybody. Right. And yet everyone's seen the same thing. So once I learned that they were here, that sort of kicked me off. In my more recent exploration, you know, the intervening 20-plus years, don't get me wrong, I was, I was interested in cryptozoology, forbidden archaeology, all these things. But, uh, yeah, I think, you know, <laughs> when you see something fantastic, mm-hmm. it, it's hard to ignore everyone else's fantastic stories, too. I think that's a really good point. Um, you know, often we say there are two types of people, those who believe in these paranormal phenomena and those who haven't had an experience yet. And um, I do think, however, there is another, a third type, and there are the deniers. There are people that have experiences, but they just deny them or bury them. And you, you, you kind of hinted at that. You said for a period there, you kind of put that experience to the back of your mind and, and whether it was a defense mechanism or whatever it was, you avoided processing it. Well, for me, so here's the weird thing. If you had asked me, did I believe that there were still living dinosaurs, even though, yes, technically they're not dinosaurs, but that's how we think of them, um, I would have said yes. I did believe mm-hmm. that there were living dinosaurs at the time. I've always been intrigued by this stuff, but I wouldn't have believed that they were that they could be living in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Right. I was in a suburb of Dallas, Texas, right? It's where I grew up. These things belong in exotic locales, you know, that are undisturbed by man. That's not Dallas, Texas. (laughs) (laughs) I assure you, even when I was was 12, that's getting a lot further in the rear view than I would like. Um, Some of the fact of the matter is, you know, even back then, I, I just couldn't believe these things could exist here and not be seen. And so this book is uh, equal parts me trying to examine what happened to me and what's happened to a lot of people, both whether it's uh, 
you know, living ram fractoid pterosaurs, the Bigfoot sightings we have, uh, some of the other cryptids and paranormal entities that we have in the area. Uh, and so it's equal parts sort of trying to explain how or, or explore how those things uh, can stay hidden in such an urban area. Uh, as much as it is also a love letter to this area that I, that I grew up in, mean, it's my home. I love this place. Uh, so I get a chance to explore where we came from. How does how does Dallas, Texas become Dallas, Texas? How does DeSoto become DeSoto? Where you know, and uh, and get to play with the lore a lot. I'm I'm a nerd. I love archaeology. So the mythology of the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex area it gave me an excuse to sort of dig into that a lot as well. So this book is is pretty much equal parts of me just trying to figure out what the heck happened to me, as it is. You know, just trying to figure out, you know, find out a little bit more about this place that I love so much. Well, let me ask you about the this particular geographic uh, region that we're talking about here and that your book focuses on. Do you think there's a, 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 an increased amount of activity in that area versus other parts of the country or the world, for that matter? Or do you think it's probably the same all over the country, but you just focused on, you know, your backyard? You know, it, it would be impossible for me to say whether or not the activity itself has increased. What I can say, though, it's, is that it's becoming more acceptable to talk about it. That's true. And I think that is the number one thing here, because you, if you go back um, 100-plus years or so, you can find people writing stories about living pterosaurs. I mean, they didn't even have the name necessarily, but they... They're describing flying lizards, flying alligators, things like that, right. uh, dragons, uh, and, and you know, wild men and, and giant gorillas. People were writing about this very freely, but around World War, you know, late, I'd say really World War One, all this sort of shuts down. And even before that, you can see there's this sort of oppressive, you know, dinosaurs are all extinct, and this is the way the world is, and no, and then anyone who talks about it gets laughed out of public, uh, you know, out of the public arena. Right. So it doesn't take much for everyone to realize, hey, if something spectacular happens to you, you've got to shut up. So, and again, it kind of happened to me, too. I mean, you know, I was with a friend, and he wasn't exactly right there when it happened, He was, but he was with me at the time. So when, he, when I told him what happened, he just laughed it off, and I realized I really can't tell anyone about this. Well, flash forward, you know, in a, in a couple decades, and all of a sudden it's become more acceptable because now people can be like, man, I saw this crazy thing. Let me go type it into the Internet. And then they find out, hey, other people have seen these things, and their story matches what I saw. So it's become more uh, more culturally appropriate or acceptable to talk about it. And plus, I just got to the point where I just started asking random people questions. Like I'd be a, you know, I'd go do research, and I'd ask you know, some I'd hop into a store and ask the you know the attendant, "Hey, have you ever seen anything crazy? Seen anything weird?" <laughs> and they'd say, "Well, well, how do you mean weird?" And I would say, "You know, I don't know, living dinosaurs, things like that." And they're like, "Well, okay, I did have this one encounter, right?" Um, so it, it's one of the things where it's a combination of people being willing to talk about it, and then I think a lot of us researchers were just crazy enough to ask. 
That's part of the battle. I mean, like you said, for a long time, it was taboo to even talk about these particular topics. And if you did, with any seriousness, you were laughed out of the public arena or you were scorned. If you were in science, if you were a scientist of some sort, you were you know, uh, laughed at by your peers. So most people avoided it. Um, only the very few brave people would actually venture into that territory. But we have created a culture now, I think, and a lot uh, thanks to the paranormal reality television shows that have introduced a lot of these ideas yep. to a lot more people um mm-hmm. you know, we've actually been able to open up a little bit more and talk about it do you think that that phenomenon in itself is going to help us get some answers yes and no um i think that the 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 fact that it's becoming more it's, it's making it easier to talk about a lot of these things um has gone a long way and i think that right there is going to be the thing that get that really helps us get the answers, because now we can actually start getting larger data sets. Because let's stop and think about the problem here. The problem is when someone has an encounter, they then have to be willing to talk about it publicly That's right. and then report it. Well, I mean, right there, you know, you're cutting down the number of people, that you, or the number of data points that you could have by half or thirds or maybe even higher. We don't even know how many people are really having these encounters. But just as a quick sort of... Uh, you know, story here. I had my encounter. I didn't really tell anyone. Then when I came sort of public with what I had seen, and that I was you know biblical paranormal researcher, I had two people that I knew and had known for a while come up to me and say, "Yeah, by the way, I saw them here too." And I'm like, "I've known you for a while. Why is this the first time I'm hearing about it?" And then I had other people who, some of these people actually made it into the book because they were credible people. These people I'd known for a long time. And they were, they're like, yeah, you know, if you're going to go public, I want to go public. I want to tell people what I saw. And so it, it, the fact is, as soon as people knew that they, that they could talk to me safely, I had two or three people who I'd known for quite some time tell me their spectacular stories, two of which revolved around uh, these flying pterosaurs. So I, in considering how easy it was to find a lot of stories, in fact, there's a ton of stories I don't even have in the book because I didn't feel as as 100% that that's what they saw, uh, or they were just re- or they were just re- repeating the same idea over and over again. So I'm like, okay, you know, try to keep it a little you know diverse here. Yeah. But I mean, the simple fact matters. It didn't take much to get to people and say, hey. Do you have a story? And some of the matters, I think a lot of people have these stories. So the fact that we can talk about them, I think it's going to help. The other problem is a lot of these, uh, you know, reality television shows. I think there's a problem because I think it's getting people to think that this is what re- how research should be done, right? Running around with a with cameras screaming here, Bigfoot, Bigfoot, Bigfoot in the forest, <laughs> right? And so I, I think unfortunately it, it has set a, a different bar for what real research looks like so there's there's positive and negatives but i think i will take the positives uh, as a greater as a greater takeaway than anything else let's talk about the pterosaur um phenomena a little bit too because uh, you know i've heard reports of sightings of these creatures as well and there does seem to be a bit of a concentration if not in texas certainly in the south and specifically the southwest as well um what, what are your thoughts on that particular a part of this discussion? You know, I, I have several ideas on that. 
I'm not 100% as to, you know, why they're here specifically. Obviously, we hear about these, about pterosaurs about the same size in Georgia, and then here in North Texas and Southern Oklahoma, they seem to keep about the 8 to 10 foot wingspan, right, as far as the adults. Yep. But then we have larger ones that are seen around the Rio Grande uh, and in the Rio Grande Valley. They do, you know, uh, I've talked to Joe Taylor at the Mount Blanco Fossil Museum. He's got reports of them being quite common uh, back 30, 40 years ago in, in the Crosbyton area, which sort of gets us gets into the deep west Texas and, and then gets you to New Mexico, Arizona, that kind of stuff. And then they do seem to be larger around California. So I I don't know if it's actually maybe two different sets of pterosaurs. Maybe larger ones seem to, you know, they like the valleys. You know, they like the more desert areas. Um, and the smaller ones are staying closer uh, to, you know, the North Texas and, and, and Georgia regions. Or if they're getting to a certain size and their environment, and so their dietary needs change or their, you know, their uh Maybe the updrafts from the, you know, and currents from these valleys become more necessary for them. Uh, I, I can tell you for a fact that the one that I saw was in a creek, which which has uh, which is basically cut very deeply into the limestone of North, of North Texas. You know, the walls are about fifteen to twenty foot high on either side. That's where I had my sighting. I had uh, two other people see. A pterosaur fly into the exact same creek, only a few miles east of where I had my encounter. And unfortunately, after the book was finished, another very credible person whom I spoke with saw what he believed to be this uh, a very similar creature less than a mile from where I had my my encounter. So I do think that there may be something about them either either because you know maybe they they roost in caves and limestone. Is it good for caves, or maybe it's a pressure thing? Maybe they're they're riding those currents. Um, could be they get to a certain size and they leave. They migrate out of the area, and that's where you. And as they get larger, you know, they they become more uh, prone to going to these other regions. I don't know. There there really isn't enough information to make a decision one way or the other. We couldn't even argue. We couldn't even really say. Well, are they the same species? Are they two completely different species? We just don't know, unfortunately. Um, but they they do the the some of the people see them here they see them in Georgia and then we do seem to see larger ones down around the the Rio Grande and into the southwest now why that is unfortunately there's just not enough information to say 100% but I, I'll tell you anyone who's uh, spent significant time out uh, in deep west Texas in the Arizona New Mexico area doesn't take long before you get stories of giant birds uh, you know, hauntings or hunting or flying over someone's car in the middle of the night, and it does seem to be that these pterosaurs are nocturnal creatures. So I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of these giant "quote unquote" bird stories are living uh, pterosaurs. You use the phrase or the words quite common. At some point, you said, or, or maybe you said more common. Uh, I think you said uh, previously they were uh, quite common. How common were those sightings previously compared to now? Again, it, it's kind of difficult to say um, because there was there was there were less opportunity for people to record these sightings. Right. So, unfortunately, it, it is very difficult to say with any real certainty, but. You can find numerous accounts uh, in in these newspapers, and so you have to assume 
that, again, particularly in the Southwest, you know, people didn't really move out here until the 40s and 50s once air conditioning was created. That's right. Uh, you know, Dallas-Fort Worth didn't really, I mean, it, it sort of blew up around World War One and going into World War II uh, because Texas became very important for the war effort. But uh, y- y- you can find many, many newspapers uh, that have these accounts. So it's one of the things where you, you kind of have to do a little math on this, you know, Fewer people running around, fewer opportunities uh, to even tell your story. So the fact that these stories did a, a, occur as often as they did, uh, and there are at least, you know there's at least a dozen stories that I'm aware of within the last twenty uh, years of the 1860s or the, of the 1800s uh, that these stories came out. It, it just you you'd have to know that these things are were it was more common to talk about them back in the day. It's just we, for the last 100 years or so, we've been ashamed to talk about it. We've been afraid to talk about it. And so a lot of people have had encounters, and they couldn't talk about it, and it just, it, it, it's, called, it, it's prevented us from really understanding what the world that we inhabit. Uh, a good point made in the chat room here. Uh, there are a few people who don't know what a pterosaur is. When we talk, use that word and we just talk about this particular creature, they can't envision it, they can't picture it. Describe what this creature is for folks who might not be familiar with it. Well, most people are probably more familiar with the pteranodon. That's the thing, you know, it's the flying crested uh, reptile that you see in, like, the Flintstones or the Jurassic Park movies, right? That's probably the most common pterosaur that people are, are thinking of. It's, it's a pteranodon. Um, but what I saw is a ramphoractoid. Um, now, the ramphorhynchus, which is what the species is named for, is a much smaller uh, group of pterosaurs. Uh, and the, the, one of the big identifiers is they don't have a bill, per se. They're more like a a traditional lizard or reptile, and they have a snout with teeth. And the thing is, they tend to have a, uh, at least the ramphorhynchus, which is what the entire species is named after, uh, named after has a, a tooth at the very tip of its snout. Uh, it's literally, the ramphorhynchus means tooth beat. Uh, so it has a, you know, more like a reptilian face with, uh, that's full of teeth. But they also have these long flanged tails, and that's an important thing. The pteranodon does not have a long tail. It's got a very stubby tail. Um, and they're much, much larger. But these, but these ram frinktoids, uh, they, they have longer tails. And they have these sort of uh, different shaped flanges on the end. Uh, most common was sort of an ovular or diamond-shaped flange. Uh, and that seems to be the most common. And are these creatures formally considered with... with uh current sightings aside, to be dinosaurs? Did they live during the time that we know as the dinosaur era? Correct. So, yeah, most people would think of them as dinosaurs, even though they're, they're technically not. They're just, they're just flying reptiles. In the same way that a plesiosaur is not technically a dinosaur, it's, it's a marine reptile. Um, it's, but most people would associate them with the, with the dinosaurs, uh, so it's not incorrect to necessarily call them dinosaurs, per se, from a colloquial standpoint. Um, but yes, they, that, that is, you know, you would, you would expect to see one of these things in a Jurassic Park movie. In fact, actually, um, a, a form of them did make it into uh, Jurassic World. Uh, they had not just the pteranodons, but when they went into the aviary, they had these other yeah. uh, flying uh, 
you know, reptiles going around. Uh, you can see some that have larger heads. I forget the actual proper name for them, but they're part of the Ramphorhynchus family. You know, they have a long flange tail, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, most people would, would associate them with dinosaurs, absolutely. So you had this experience as a young child. It stuck with you. It created a curiosity in you. When did you start uh, actually looking into the phenomena from an academic standpoint and start exploring, uh, which ultimately led you to writing this book? In a lot of ways, actually, I, I was kind of already looking at the time. I was already sort of fascinated by it, but I think it really kicked into high gear um, as my interest in archaeology blew up. Um, so about the same time, you know, teenage years, um, it was always sort of there. Uh, but I think what really pushed me uh, into the cryptozoological world um, was an encounter, well, not an encounter per se, but while I was out uh, on an archaeological dig, uh, we ran, a, we were sort of off in the woods, and we and we came across a weird formation of, of trees, and this is very controversial with. Um, Bigfooters, so mm-hmm. just we'll have to just trust the story here. But I saw an X formation where it was clearly these two saplings had been tied, had been had been crossed to make an X, but they were sort of tied at the top. And I'm like, you know, about seven, eight foot off the ground is where they were sort of connected. And I asked uh, one of the girls who was with me, who was actually a local. This is out in Nacogdoches. Um, you know, we were, we had gone out into the uh, you know deeper into the East Texas forest. And I was like, uh, do you know what this is about? And she goes, oh, yeah, the stick Indians made them. And, hmm. and so that's, she, it was just so nonchalant to her that right. I didn't think anything of it. It wasn't until later that I was like, well, hold on. I've never heard anyone talk about the stick Indians because right. uh, the, the people we were studying were the Caddo. That's who we were studying. And I'm like, well, you know, I knew there were still Caddo in the region. They, you know, so I was like, okay, it was probably just another name for them. But I was like... I, you know, going through the literature, I didn't remember ever running across that as a as a title given to the Caddo for the region. And so I started looking at it and I realized the only place, the only reference I could find to them was in a so of the Stick Indians was in association with Bigfoot. That that was sort of an indi- a name given by several indigenous tribes um, to them because they, you know, some saw them as spirits, others saw them as just another tribe. That was just very very strange. Um, and so that kind of set me off, you know, from, not necessarily from archaeology, or in particularly forbidden archaeology, but it sort of opened that path back up to say, hey, you need to start taking a look at these cryptozoological creatures again, because you saw something that is attributed to them. Right. And that sort of brought, ultimately brought me back to these, uh, you know, to this, to this ramp, to this event that I, you know, this encounter I had when I was, uh, you know, 11 or 12 years old, and sort of brought me into cryptozoology, you know, sort of whole hog. And, of course, once you're into the cryptozoology, you, you, you get into the paranormal as well, If unless you're, you're like, nope, I'm only going to look at this flesh and blood stuff. But it just became too hard to say, hey, I'm getting stories of people seeing actual goat men or seeing things that just don't make sense. These aren't just ghost stories. These are creatures that are clearly paranormal. What's going on with this? And so... One thing sort of leads to the, leads to the other. Basically, Bigfoot is is the cryptozoological equivalent of a gateway drug. <laughs> you know, what, and it's just it's downhill from there. <laughs> I've never heard it put heard it put that way, but it's so true and a very accurate way to describe it. Um, 
We're talking tonight with Jason McLean. Jason is the author of a book called Metroplex, Monsters, Dallas Demons, Fort Worth Goatmen, and Other Terrors of the Trinity River. Jason, uh, we started off our conversation here uh, talking about your experience, and that led us to a conversation about Terrasaur specifically. But the book is about much more than that. In fact, in the title, you mentioned a couple other creatures as well. What types of uh, phenomena and experiences have been reported in this particular geographical region that uh, you found to be fascinating enough to include in the book? Well, okay, so the big one in, you know, okay, yeah, it's a pun. It's the 800-pound gorilla in the yeah. area is definitely Bigfoot. Right. Right. Um, both, and I mean it in a very literal sense, the fact that that is the creature most often reported physically, as far as physical creatures. Uh, but it's also mythologically true. And what I mean by that is, I think the thing that really surprised me the most was the more I dug into a lot of these sort of quote-unquote goat men stories, the more I started seeing similarities. And so I kind of had to go back and re-examine the Lake Worth Monster event. I was actually going to kind of ignore it because everyone talks about it, right? You talk about the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, you talk about cryptids, you're going to talk about the Lake Worth Monster. And, of course, I do that as well, but I was going to make it a very small piece. But the thing is, I kept running across things that didn't make sense necessarily, right? Okay. And that's when I realized that it was, that, you know, not only were people seeing Bigfoot, in fact, people were seeing Bigfoot in places I used to frequent as a teenager, and that, that kind of freaked me out. But um, I started looking at a lot of the lore of the area and, and, and why, goat, you know, the word, why the name Goatman kept showing up, and I started noticing how much of an impression um, the both the name Goatman had, but then also the, the, the lore, the story of what happened out at, uh, at Lake Worth. It, it just sort of realigned the urban legends of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And so a lot of these things where we see what my theory is, at least, and I think it bears out with... Um, some people did some the Cedar Hill Historical Society did a great job of recount of actually recording a lot of really interesting encounters, including you know right after Lake Worth Monster event happens that fall, several people run across a Bigfoot in Cedar Hill. Well, because of everything that had occurred, they used the name Goatman for it because that was the popular name. Uh, Jim Mars, the reporter for the uh, I want to say it was the Dallas, the Fort Worth Times Herald. Um, he named it Goatman. Well, that name sort of gets thrown on there. And so where maybe earlier, say, going up around the Waxahachie, the Red Oak, you know, the Red Oak area out in this, people talked about the monster or the creature that would haunt these creeks and go up and down the creeks making these howls. Then they all became Goatmen instantly overnight. People would have encounters with them, and it would become the Goatman. But then what would happen very interestingly, is the local uh, paranormal phenomena or just regular urban legends get sort of overwritten, and now Goatman is the cause behind them. So, yeah, we see Bigfoot here in Dallas. Uh, usually, on, you know, obviously not walking walk around downtown, although I can tell you some, some uh, weird encounters around Harry Hines. Um, the locals will get that one. Um, but it's, you know, it's not going to be downtown, but they do see them. But even more profound than the fact that people see a Bigfoot um, is 
is the impact it's had mythologically on the urban legends and the stories of the Dallas Fourth Metroplex, and and that's that was a lot of fun to explore, but also start begging questions because people actually do see goat men in and around the White Rock Lake area, which is not that far from downtown, and this is clearly a paranormal creature. This is not just someone seeing a Bigfoot and giving it the name Goatman. It is a real paranormal Goatman. Half human, half goat, horns, whole nine yards. But it's clearly paranormal because it disappears. And it does seem to take on slightly different shapes the further away from White Rock Lake it goes. All right, so help me understand here. Um, Are you saying that the same creature that was originally uh, reported and to be and called Bigfoot uh, is now being called Goatman? So here's where things get interesting, right? The Lake Worth monster is a Bigfoot. That was a Bigfoot that people saw. But Jim Mars, the reporter, gave it the name Goatman in his reportings. Okay. So... So mythologically, the name Goatman becomes important. And where people who had had encounters for you know over a hundred years of Bigfoot in around the Dallas Forest area, they you know they had other local names like uh, the creature or the monster. You know we had these stories. Everything becomes Goatman though. That name, that moniker, sticks to it. So the problem is you have the Bigfoot that has been called Goatman. Right. Then you have these urban legends that get the name Goatman as well. And so the thing is, a lot of that sort of combines in the lore, right? The, the things that Jim Mars writes about in his accounts of the Lake Worth Monster uh, attack in the 60s, get they, people take that information, they lay it over these other urban legends that sort of become the Goatman. But then what gets really complicated is Okay, so we have the name being used for all these other things, but then we actually do see what you could call is a goat man, a human, you know, a seven-foot-tall person with horns and, and goat legs out running around the White Rock Lake area. People see them. Yeah. I have several accounts of them in the book, and, you're, and so it becomes a question of, well, hold up. What happened here? <laughs> Why do we have an actual goat man running around here? Of course, he doesn't seem to look quite as goat-esque the further away he gets from White Rock Lake, but which begs a whole bunch of other questions. Are, is our telling the stories of the goat man, has that somehow created this weird satyr being? You know, uh, Nick Redfern talks about tulpas, the idea that... Yeah. That humans can think about things, and our thinking about them, our telling stories, gives rise to these creatures. Or is it, as uh, Pastor Bruce Tinsler talks about, as I discuss in the book, is it simply the fact that maybe these creatures use? You know, they're already they're already paranormal creatures or demons, and they already exist, but they use our stories as ways to come into our world. Or is it possible that just for what you know, these are just what these creatures look like, and our and the reason we keep telling these stories? Why do we keep telling stories about Goatman in the U.S. and then it's the Leshy in Russia or the Shaidim to the Hebrew? Right? The, it, it just keeps going back and forth. Maybe it's because that's just what these creatures look like. But again, it becomes it starts to become a mess, a Gordian knot of mythology and, and real encounters, and we you know the book tries to at least unravel it as best as we can, although I don't know that I 
necessarily come to too many answers. Uh, what, what at, least about, we have, at least we know more. Yeah, what about the idea that maybe some of these, whether maybe it's all of them, maybe all of these paranormal encounters are actually some type of spiritual creature that can 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 access our conscious mind and and see the things that maybe frighten us or maybe these images and as you said if Goatman was a creation of our own uh this spiritual creature can identify that within our minds and then present itself as that creature i I think that's i think that's very much sort of an idea that i play with in the book because he and this is a question i've been asking myself really the last few months which is what is the nature of worship Right? What does that really entail? Because if I was, you know, say a supernatural being, you know, you can call them demons, you can call them whatever you want. But if I wanted, you know, people to pay attention to me, what I, you know, how would I behave? Well, I would appear in a very strange and fantastic form. I'd appear in one area that, you know, maybe was already known for it to get people to come and pay attention. What do we do? We make little statues of them and we sell them. We call mm-hmm. them action figures and. People want to go see the goat man, so they go and they hang out. They buy T-shirts with it, and they go walk around. They take pictures of everything. Maybe that's what this is all about. Maybe these are just creatures, and, and they take these strange forms so that we'll be attracted to them. And maybe they choose those forms, like you said, based off of our own stories, our own myths, our own urban legends. Right. And they do, and they appear just often enough to be interesting. Yeah, and another example of that, of course, is the Slenderman story, whereby yes. that seems to be something. I mean, it was certainly something that was created by an individual uh, on mm. creepy pasta, and then you know, several years later, not only are people reporting sightings of this Slenderman, but you've got teenagers committing uh, acts of violence in Slenderman's name. So that's another example of yes. how that can evolve. No, absolutely, absolutely. The, yeah, the Slenderman phenomenon is is very bizarre in a number of ways, and that's. And I think tragically, the fact you do have people trying to commit uh, murders in his name, and you're like, this is a cre- It's like this isn't even a real creature. Right. Really. It's not supposed to be, and yet, like you said, people see it. Uh, the other thought that I had that I've also had about the Slenderman is, what if it's just so? Because this is such a, a, a vague idea of what it looks like. What if it, it? What if there is something out there? It's just sort of that's sort of our nature, our natural. Uh, I don't know our natural fear. The you know an unconscious, a collective unconscious form, right? The tall, slender, faceless creature. I mean, in many ways, it's, it, it shares a lot of similarities with some of the creatures that uh, I, I recount in the book, particularly the White Rock Lake. Goatman, when he leaves White Rock Lake specifically, he tends to look more like the Slender Man, very tall, very thin, gaunt, elongated skull, um, things like that. It's, it's entirely possible, don't get me wrong, I do think that maybe the, the suit, though, is a nod to it. Like you said, maybe these creatures are just taking the form that uh, is popular, right? That it'll get so that it can, get, it can gain attention. Right. Uh, from us, because it's you know it's basically riding that wave, uh, or it's entirely possible that maybe the Slender Man is just it's nondescript enough. It's sort of that that collective unconscious because that's what some of these creatures really look like, and that's what it's tapped into. Um, it may be six one way, half dozen the other, chicken or the egg question, yeah. right? 
Um, I want to go back to the goat man uh, specifically for a second mm-hmm. here, because in some of the reports and the stories I've heard, and I'm curious as to whether you heard the same thing, and these are included in the book, uh, there's a real sense of foreboding with goat man sightings, real sinister yeah. air associated with them. Unlike Bigfoot, book, big, mm-hmm. the Bigfoot sightings don't seem to have that same sense of foreboding as goat man sightings. Did you find that in your research? Yes and no. I mean, so first let me start with the goat man. Yes, he he is associated with literally the word panic. And if you look at, I mean, even the word that we use for for panic comes from pan, which was a, a satyr, uh, Greek satyr like god, uh, literally a goat man. And the thought and the reason the word exists was it was believed that when he would wake up from his naps, he would that he was awoken from a nap. That he would cause the flocks, his his you know, his being awoken un, uh, unceremoniously could uh, would cause animals to stampede. So that's where the word panic comes from. Actually, it's from this goat man. It's from this goat man legend in mythology from ancient Greece. Uh, the Sandy Grace story, uh, where she's running around White Rock Lake and she actually in broad daylight sees this goat man approach her, and then he just he just sort of disappears in a blinding flash of light. She talks about having this this weird and sudden onset of absolute panic before she even sees the creature, um, and the so I mean that's the most famous case is is the one uh, is, is Sandy Grace's, and that's absolutely true. Well, I was able to get another account, and they describe the same thing, just this this complete sense of of panic when they see the creature. And they they just leave like there's no curiosity there's no it's just it's fight or flight. Whereas with with Bigfoot there are other accounts who are just like I'm I was surprised you know I mean there are people right. who have who are terrified of their encounter with Bigfoot. Um, there's a difference between yes, being scared, you're yeah. startled, or you know you're looking at something that you know you've, you've never seen before. Mm-hmm. It's very it's very you know it's 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 obviously an impressive creature in size and strength, so you have that natural right. fear of that. But that's not the same as a sense of foreboding. No, it's not. And again, I go back to, I think Sandy Grace's story is so, is so important because she has this panic attack, which she had never had before, and she's in at least at her last uh, interview has, has never had again. But she had hers before she saw the creature. So the panic wasn't from seeing the creature, yeah. it was of the creature or from the creature. Right, it preceded it, yeah. Yeah, and that's a key thing. This is, whatever this creature is, and again, it's clearly paranormal, it it almost begs the question, Do does it feed off of fear, that panic? It's not just that it's creating it, it's feeding off of it, because it seems to want to, el- to elicit that fear. Um, in fact, I was talking with uh, uh, Vic Coleman, uh, a while back, and he, that's one of the things that he describes, even with a lot of the dogman encounters that he has, that these things are, are seemingly, instead of attacking people, they're going after and trying to make people afraid to create fear and trauma in people, um, perhaps because they enjoy it or perhaps because that is something that they feed off of. But I, I would absolutely suggest that is definitely a, one of the big differences between Bigfoot and, say, Dogman or Goatman is yeah, Sasquatch may scare, may scare people because, you know, he's big, he's impressive, like you said. Um, it's, 
clear that you're not on the top of that food chain when right. he's in the room, <laughs> right. right? But when you get to these other clearly more paranormal creatures like the goat man and dog man, some of these other creatures, they seem to feed off of fear. Um, I don't even I don't know if I, it's they're necessarily chupacabra, but there is a an account that I have, uh, you know, in Cedar Hill that seems to follow a lot of this sort of almost haunting phenomena. But there's a, but there are creatures seen in association with it. They use the word chupacabra with, um, and again, it seems it seems like that creature was there to create fear more than anything else. Uh, it wasn't there to do anything or even harm them, but it was there to make them very, very afraid. Another uh, creature that you brought up in that answer, you said dogmen. We hadn't really talked about that specifically, but I think it, we need to. Uh, also, reports of dogman sightings have come with this sense of foreboding, very similar to Goatman. Do you think there's some mm-hmm. some you know mis- misidentification here with those two creatures? Are they the same thing, or is it something very different? You know, that's a great question. I, I, I wish, unfortunately, that there were there were better answers for that. Um, what's worse is over the last two weeks, I've had I have reason to have heard of a different version of Dogman that has goat-like feet. Oh, really? Um, yes, uh, some uh, of an account again from Texas, outside the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex. It's on the sto- it's on the book per se, but yeah, I mean, people have talked about. And some of them having goat-like feet, so it's like, okay, or hooves. So you're like, well, maybe they're the same thing, or maybe not. Um, but my, uh, I co-host a, a podcast myself, and we just were recently out on, a, on an expedition. We, we sort of ran across some, some things. I won't get into too much of the details. They're irrelevant, but he got us researching uh, whether or not mammals can see an eye in infrared. And that's sort of begged up the question of, well, what about lemurs? You know, there, there used to be giant lemurs that would run around. Some of them, we, when we found some recreations of them, looked very much like Dogman. So it's, you could almost say, well, maybe Dogman is just, you know, like Bigfoot, may just be an extinct, uh, or what we thought to be an extinct form of ape or lemur that's just running around. But then you have these other stories, and you just don't know what to do with them, where they're clearly intelligent, they're clearly paranormal. And so it goes back to sort of the question you asked earlier, what if some paranormal creatures are taking forms that we find interesting, right? So that we, it would, to catch our, to get our, our uh, you know, our interest. So what if there's a physical dog man running around, maybe something more exotic than a, than a you know, previously thought to be extinct lemur? Maybe there is a Bigfoot running around, just an extinct, you know, what we thought to be an extinct ape like Gigantopithecus or maybe a, a human cousin. But then there are paranormal creatures. Maybe they're taking those forms because we find them interesting and less threatening than, say, goat man per se or the devil or whatever. And so they're taking those forms in order to uh, elicit interest, and maybe in that interest becomes worship to a point. So, I mean, unfortunately, there's just what we have are stories, incredible stories from credible eyewitnesses of just tr- of genuinely incredible things. And so we're left with a lot of questions and not a whole lot of answers, sadly. So here's probably the most important question when it comes to somebody who's skeptical of any of these reports, regardless of what it is. And, it, you know, the Dallas 
uh, metro area is no exception and may even be a bit of a more of a challenge. But how do these things stay so elusive in areas where there's a significant population or for that matter, with ever increasing improvements in technology, they should be able to capture better pictures or thermal imaging or even satellite photography. For God's sakes, you can zoom into, uh, you know, Google Earth and see, you know, street level stuff um, with satellite mm-hmm. photos. How is it that these things remain so elusive? That is a great question, and I absolutely address that in the book. Now, with the paranormal stuff, you kind of put that to the side because it's paranormal, right? Right, it's, right. it's supernatural. That's kind of off the board. But we do have, you know, don't get me wrong, we have some aquatic creatures that people have seen, uh, giant catfish, some, some giant alligator gar, which terrifies, that, that's a terrifying thought unto itself. But it's like the aquatic stuff, okay, it's underwater, you can get rid of it, but how do you hide an eight-foot-tall bipedal ape? How do you how do you hide a uh, a flying reptile with an eight to ten foot wingspan? In like you said, three with all the technology we have, and I would ask, and I would actually return that by saying, our entire lifestyle is dedicated to hiding these creatures. Beyond the fact that we you know we don't that it's been up until now just taboo to talk about them. Look at how we actually live our lives. I talk about a concept I call the green wall. What do we do, particularly in North Texas? We, we build roads, right? And then we clear the area just outside the roads, and we, we keep it all mowed up into the tree line. So all this water that's, 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 that would be hitting the road gets funneled off into these areas. And so what we have is right where that tree line starts, which is a nice light row, is where all the tall grass gets to be and the shrubs get to be. And then you have the trees start from that point on. So what you have is a literal green wall. You cannot see into it at all. Now, once you get sort of a few feet into it, right, inside these green spaces, it becomes much more clear because the trees grow, they become denser, and they sort of uh, block the light. So you, you have some brambles hiding back there, certainly, but by and large, it's, it's easy to move around, particularly in and around the creeks. But on the human-facing side of things, you can't see into the green spaces because of this green wall. That's a byproduct of how we live our lives. Secondly, what do we do? We don't live in the forest anymore. We live in cities. We live in these concrete islands that are surrounded by the green wall. We keep ourselves separate from them. We're on our phones all day. We're driving in cars at 60 miles an hour to get to our jobs every day. We don't venture into their world. So the only time that we'd even run across them is when, for whatever reason, they stray into ours. Now, some people may say, well, but yeah, how could these creatures still stay hidden even with that? Well, here's a great example. The city of Irving is basically just a continuance of downtown Dallas's concrete sprawl. Like, there are points that if you're, if you're native to the area, you know you've entered Irving just because of where you are. But if you were from out of town, you'd never know that you went from Dallas to Irving because it's all the same concrete, right? It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And yet, in this city that is basically just entirely one large, giant concrete slab, there is upwards of a 1,000 feral hogs that cause thousands of dollars of damage every year, and we can't get rid of them. These aren't tiny little piglets running around. These are feral hogs. They're quite large. They're quite dangerous. And they like to cause all kinds of damage and havoc in people's yards. 
And yet most people living in Irving never see them, they never hear them, and we sure as the world can't get rid of them. Why? Because they hide behind the green wall. They live in the areas that we don't go. And the key to understanding the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex is the Trinity River. Life is only possible in this area because of the Trinity River. There really well, there aren't any natural lakes in this area. It's the river that we get our lakes from. We impound its water to create these artificial lakes. But everything exists in and around these creeks and rivers. Well, we do have yearly flooding. So what do we do? We we put our we have to put our cities next in towns next to the creek, but then we also have to protect from the flooding. So it's just easier to create green spaces around the creeks. So we don't get close enough to the creeks to be damaged by the waters that come every year. So we've given them wide berth. In fact, where I grew up, DeSoto, where I had my encounter, the 10-mile creek, you can't see into it there part at all unless you're on a bridge crossing over it. You just can't see into that thing. And there's plenty of green spaces around. You could march an entire army down some of these creeks. No one would see anything. No one would hear anything. And no one would be the wiser. So you want to hide a couple dozen Bigfoot in the area? That's easy as that's as easy as pie. You want to hide a couple of uh, pterosaurs? You know, maybe a couple dozen pterosaurs at best, critically endangered species that's mostly nocturnal to begin with, and then also happens to look like a a blue heron. Unless you're really paying attention to it, I think these things. I think our entire lifestyle is dedicated to not seeing these creatures. You know, I think you made a, an interesting point there, especially when you talk about um, how we can think we know so much about our surroundings, but we actually know very little. And an example of that that I discovered personally is that you don't realize how everything you're aware of is based on where you can drive your car. In other words, the road. You think you know the geography of the area you live in, but you only know it from the road. If you go, you know, 300 yards off of the road, you'd be lost. You wouldn't even know where you are, even though you think you know that area very well. And I discovered that when I started snowmobiling. Um, You know, we'd be, Mm -hmm. you know, snowmobiling through these fields and stuff, and I have no idea where we are. And then we'd, we'd come to a road, and like, as soon as I hit the road, I'm like, oh, Okay, now I have a sense of direction, and it illustrated to me how everything we know about our geography in the areas that we live in is based on where we can travel by car. Exactly. No, precisely. We live on these little concrete islands that are yeah. connected by these little concrete bridges. That 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 is our life. That's how we. That's how we can. And we don't realize how much just uninhabited land there is. Again, I will challenge anyone, go to Google, go to Google Earth and just type in wherever you are, your city. Mm-hmm. You're going to find a lot more green than you realize, a lot more undeveloped land than you realize. And it doesn't take long for even previously developed areas to be completely taken over by, uh, by greenery if it gets abandoned. It doesn't take very long at all. So a lot of this, a lot of these areas. That's the thing is, it's just the way we we live our lives actually creates the green wall because we we don't want to go near it. It's more expensive to go near it. So what do we do? We we mow our lawns, we we build our roads, and we we've actually ended up creating and we protect the we protect our green spaces. We don't let development happen in green spaces because we want to protect it, or it's too expensive because of the flooding. You have to do more things to protect yourself from the floods. So everyone sort of automatically avoids it. 
our entire lifestyle is dedicated towards actually creating environments in which these creatures thrive. And like I said, with the pterosaurs, everyone I've ever spoken with said, at first I thought it was fill in the blank, a heron, a crane, right. uh, you know, a, a pelican carrying something. And, and the reason for it is because of the shape of the wings and because of the S-curved neck. You know, when you watch a heron fly, they do that S-curve thing with their neck. Mm-hmm. And so these things look like these herons. You have to pay attention to even recognize them for what they are. So if we're talking about a, very, a critically endangered species, so you don't have that many individuals running around. They're already reptiles, so they're not eating that often, right? Not as often as, as birds have to. And they're mostly nocturnal. The few times they get seen, people are just going to drive. They're just going to keep on driving because they got to get to work or they got to get get the kids dropped off to school or whatever. They just, our entire lifestyle actually kind of prevents us from seeing them. When you uh, started to put these stories together, you know, we've, we obviously have talked about Bigfoot, we've talked about Goatman, we've talked about Dogman, we've talked about the pterosaurs. Uh, what about some more like, you know, uh, what I, I guess we would call more traditional paranormal type activity in the area? Did you get to cover any of that in the book? Well, um, so again, Goatman probably being uh, the big one, but yeah, uh, so there are some some paranormal things. I try to, I honestly try to avoid ghost stories per se. Okay. Uh, for the area, only because everyone talks about ghost stories. But let me tell you my favorite paranormal story that does that is in the book, and that is we have an atta- a young lady who's attacked by a lechusa. Uh, now if that's a new a new word for for everyone. It's a new word um, for me. It's a new one for me. So I imagine most of my listeners would probably think the same thing. What is a lechusa? Well, it, it's a it, it is a Hispanic uh, monster that is very popular in Hispanic lore. It's basically a giant owl. Imagine a a human sized owl, but with the face of a woman. It is thought to either be conjured by witches or be a witch that turns into the creature. And in this, and I won't go into all the details, because it is sort of a long story, but a young woman was walking home late at night. Her aunt was a Kurandara. Again, probably a new word for people. Um, just think shaman, uh, but, for his, but for the Hispanic culture. Um, and uh, for those who know what Santeria is, where Santeria is a, an amalgamation of uh, different indigenous magical practices and uh, the Catholic faith, she was a Kirindara that was in that was very similar. It, she practiced something very similar to Santeria. Her so this young lady, her aunt is the Kirindara for Oak Cliff, which is basically right off of downtown Dallas. She's coming home late one night with a friend, and. One thing to understand is that entire area, it never really gets dark, right? Because you're just off of downtown. Midnight or not, it, the sky is basically just a, a dark purple because of all the light pollution. They're heading home. All of a sudden, everything goes dark. They're hearing something fly from tree to tree and something large. And because the trees are like being, they're not being landed on, they're being crashed into. Well, her friend abandons her. She runs home. She she's waking people up because she's banging on the windows to let her in the front in the front door because this thing is right behind her and she knows it. She can hear it. Her aunt opens the door and starts screaming and tells her not to look. 
but what she's she was always wearing this apron those full of charms and magic potions and things and so she's telling her 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 niece the young lady who was who was assaulted by this creature not to turn around not to look at it and she's swearing and praying in spanish while casting and throwing things just whatever she had on her holy water charms whatever and she's throwing at this thing well the young lady looks around and she sees one of the branch, the uh, this one of the primary branches of the thing that landed on it on the tree that's in her front yard is basically bowed all the way down to the ground. That's how heavy this creature was. Mm-hmm. But it was an owl the size of a human being with this woman's face and was screaming at her. Well, she gets inside the house. They close the door. She tells her to go upstairs and, and take a shower. She burns the clothes, which was very upsetting to her uh, to uh, the young woman who was attacked because. Uh, she had her, her. She just bought brand new Doc Martens, and any child of the '90s will tell you how important those Doc Martens were. Oh yeah. So, yeah, mine lasted forever. Anyway, so she's you know in she's in the shower. Her aunt is again still swearing and praying in Spanish, and she's breaking eggs over her, and she's throwing herbs on her. She thinks she's at some point she thinks she's going to become a fried chicken, and. Then she's left alone, and she's drying off, and all of a sudden she starts hearing tap, tap, tap. Oh. Tap, tap, tap on the glass. Well, she goes to her room the entire night. Tap, tap, tap. Tap, tap, tap. And this thing follows her for the next week. In fact, she's, she even skipped school to go watch a movie uh, with a friend just because, you know, of everything that's happened. Plus, she wasn't that great of a student to begin with. Um but she goes to see a movie in the West End, and she can hear the rustling of feathers in the movie theater. And she's and she asks the friend, she goes, "Are you hearing anything?" She goes, "He's like, no, I don't hear anything." But it it stopped haunting her after about a week or so. But yeah, no, it's a. In the weird thing is, I have a, an account again, also in the book, of a quote unquote gargoyle that was seen not too far from that particular location. So. Are they the same creature? Are they related? We don't know. Or is it just wow. apparently we get two paranormal creatures in the same area? Who, who knows? But, yeah, there are some paranormal stories. Uh, like I said, the thing that happened in Cedar Hill is really bizarre and clearly paranormal, even though there is a physical creature seemingly connected to it. So you must have drawn some uh, conclusions or maybe some parallels or even connected some dots here based on that story you just told us, and maybe connections to the Mothman stories. Sounds very, very familiar. Many people who uh, describe the Mothman described it as a big owl-type creature. Yes. Uh, did you did you mm. uh, consider that at all? Well, I don't talk about Mothman specifically in the book, only because I think I'm saving it for another book. Um, <laughs> but I do, however, specifically with Lachusa, it has much more, I think, in connection with uh, the harpies of Greek mythology okay, and with yeah. Lilith of of both Hebrew and uh, Sumerian, uh, you know their religious practices and beliefs. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think that's sort of the thing is, is again it goes back to this sort of theme I have of asking maybe of asking the question of are we maybe that's what these creatures really look like, and it's just we keep tell, we end up telling the same stories over and over again because that's what these things are. They, it's just we give them different names, right? To the Hebrew, they were the, and to the uh, Sumerians, it, the, this creature was the Lilith, the thing that would come and find children at the night and eat them and kill them. That's why we, uh, and, and 
steal their souls. That's why we sing lullabies to our children at night to drive away Lilith. Maybe they're in. Maybe it was the harpies to the Greeks. Maybe it's the lechusa to uh, modern to modern Hispanic cultures. But it's the same form: female, owl, connection to witches. Uh, oftentimes, they're used. You know, particularly with the, with the harpies, that's exactly what they were. They were controlled by witches, and they were used to torment uh, people who for whom the witch had problems with. Same thing with the goat man, right? The Leshy of Russia looks very much like the fawns and satyrs of the Greek and Romans, which looks like uh, Enkidu uh, from the Epic of Gilgamesh, which looks like the Shadim of the Hebrew. It, it, it's, these, all, these creatures seem to go back to the very beginning of human history. And I don't know if it's because we keep telling their stories or if we keep telling them because they're there or they're there because we're telling their stories. Right, right. Um, let me just ask you this kind of a side note because of, uh, of of the other work that you've done and basically how we opened up this conversation. Uh, when you look at this paranormal and this uh, cryptid activity, do you find ways either the activity supports biblical biblical accounts or vice versa, the biblical accounts support that this activity is real? So particularly with the paranormal, right, it's, it, it's almost undeniable. Because so often uh, you, you can find accounts of these creatures where they, they again, they, they avoid uh, Christian symbols. They, they avoid the use of the name of Jesus. They are, you know, people who are tormented by these creatures are often, you, you, you know, traditional Christian uh, exorcism rites will end these encounters. Uh, probably the most common that I've, I've, I've dealt with are people who have sleep paralysis. This doesn't necessarily show up in the, in the book because it's, it's kind of universal, but sleep paralysis, people who are visited by demonic entities in the night, usually, in my experience, a lot of people who've experienced this, not 100%, but most of them have had um, traumatic e- events. Usually, uh, they're molested as children. And that trauma seems to create fear and and anger issues that uh, that eventually boil over in this visitation by these creatures. They seem to feed off of the trauma. Well, everyone I've been able to help were people who basically returned to their, oftentimes returned to their faith, and it was the use of of of, Christi- of traditional Christian practices that ended them entirely. And, of course, usually people were better off because they were able to forgive. They were able to release uh, a lot of the anger and, and, and the, the trauma uh, through forgiveness that the, Bible, that the Bible preaches and so, so heartily. So as far as the paranormal creatures go, yeah. I mean, beyond the fact that, again, the Shayadim, which, which are these goat men, which are talked about there, is, these things are, even their behaviors are repeated in the Bible. But I think for me the big thing is, how people are, are the thing that most often resolves these sort of hauntings is what's taught in the Bible. It's the practical application of of its word that actually that actually saves people's sanity from time to time because of these encounters. As you were putting the book together, we only have a few minutes left here, uh, Jason. The time has gone quickly, but as you were putting the 
book together. Did you encounter any stories that either you know made you put put shivers down your spine, made you think twice about your line of work, or uh, just in general surprised you? Yes, I, I mean the the, the 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 fast answer to that is oh, absolutely. In fact, I think the story that freaks me out the most I didn't even put in the book. Oh, really? Um, because there was just I had too many unanswered questions. Um, but again, a lot of like a lot of the scariest stuff I didn't put in there. There's actually a ghost story that I heard from a friend of mine who's a police officer that really it's disturbing. But it was just a ghost story, so I kind of left it out. Um, in fact, his best stories are the are the ones where the human uh, criminals those those seem to be far scarier than most of these uh, other paranormal creatures. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, easily the, the the story that weirded me out the most is the one I didn't is one that I didn't put in the book. Um, because there was just too much to research. There was just too much about it that was so weird and bizarre. But let me tell you, there is some weird stuff out there. I think probably the strangest thing that I discovered while reading, while researching the book is one that I didn't expect, and that was uh, The Legend of the Hinky Man. It is, just very quickly, it was the, so the Ten Mile Creek where I grew up fishing in, has this myth, and I didn't even I didn't, hadn't even heard of it. Apparently, it was more of a Lancaster, East DeSoto thing. But supposedly there was this man in a hairy out in a hairy coat that would go up and down the creek and kidnap children who were down there smoking and oh, wow. drinking and and you know reading their porn mags because that's where you went you know in the eighties to go hide <laughs> was in the was in the creeks right. So this creature would go up and down and then kidnap children. Well, the uh, as soon as I heard this, I'm like, hold on, this sounds a lot like Krampus, right? It's a, it's an yeah. evolution of the Krampus myth. Well, sure. did, a little, did a little digging, and of course I point out there is, I have several very strange Bigfoot encounters in the Ten Mile Creek, which would make perfect sense. And so it, it so what happened was, I, I did a little bit more digging, a little bit more fleshing, and I discovered that the Czechoslovakian community was... All basically all in and around sort of the more eastern side of the Dallas Fourth area. Now, most of our those of your listeners in the Dallas Fourth Metroplex, we love our kolaches, and we love our uh, our, our our Texas kolaches, also known as the kolbasnik. Uh, we love these things beyond beyond measure. Well, the reason is that because the Czechoslovakian community uh, settled very early in the area, they had you know concentrated centers. Well. To, to sum this up, the Hinky Man is just an evolution of Krampus, because you know they, they, you had the stories of people seeing Bigfoot in the Ten Mile Creek. Well, the so the the Czechoslovakian uh, you know people of the area sort of they took that and they made it their own, and they they drew from Krampus, which was familiar to them. But my family were Scottish. You know, the idea of Krampus was a very foreign idea to us. So. I never actually heard of it because, you know, most of the people that I that I hung out with were, uh, you know, and family members were again they were from this this sort of Scott Anglo-Saxon uh, traditions, but it was just fun to see this one little weird cultural, uh, you know, sort of impression right. in the lore where it's like here is the here is a perfect example of, of a of a culture from a different time in a different place, sort of re, you know, sort of coming here 
and ha- and seeing the same thing and coming at and and, cr- and its lore the inf- the influence of its lore creates an entirely new urban legend. Uh, that was probably my favorite little little oddity that I discovered while uh, while researching the book. Plus that and the fact that the uh, Klobosnik, which is basically a, a large pig in a blanket but with uh, peppers, was was invented in Texas, which made me really really happy. <laughs> Um, we're basically out of time, Jason, but the stories are great. The book sounds terrific. Where can people find the book if they want to buy it? Uh, the easiest place would be Amazon.com uh, or BarnesandNoble.com. I highly recommend buying 12 uh, so you can share <laughs> with all your friends and family members, and even people you don't like. Just share the book with them and tell them to read the story uh, about uh, the the Cedar Hill Chupacabra and the uh, and the Lechusa and you know, for the people you don't like, tell them just to read those stories, and they'll keep them up at night. Before I let you go, tell us what uh, the website's about. It's I, I think it's uh, Ciru, S-I-R-U-Papers.com. You have an organization that you've created. Tell us what yes. that's about, her folks, before we let you go. Well, uh, right now it is uh, it's sort of me talking about what we're talking about, the biblical worldview. How does that apply to things? Uh, right now we have a lot of articles up on misidentified monsters uh, of the Bible, things like that. But uh, in the coming months, I'm going to create a sort of digital library or, or more of a, a museum that's going to explore things like forbidden archaeology, uh, flood geology, uh, cryptozoology, and really sort of put these things more into a broader context of what does the Bible actually say, what is the worldview that's presenting, and how, do these, and how does it actually... It, these are things that you'd kind of expect to see in a world that the Bible describes. Jason, I hope you'll agree to come back at some point, because we've only scratched the surface on this topic. I thank you for your work, by the way, in bringing all of this information together in the form of a book for uh, people who are interested in it. And it seems as though that universe is growing every day as more and more people discover these ideas and are looking for some answers. Hey, I'd love to come back, JB. You have a great show here, and, and I agree. I think that as people become more comfortable say, you know, talking about these things, uh, we're going to get more stories, we're going to get more evidence, and eventually maybe we can get some better answers. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.